This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. If you think that robots that look like toys are really just toys, then you might like to think again. Or if your school is considering investing in robots as part of a STEM program, well, the potential is mind-blowing. My guest today is Sam Kingsley from The Brainery, which develops and supplies a variety of educational technologies that go far beyond what you might simply describe as a toy. What I thought was going to be a conversation mainly around the social robot dog called Miro turned out to be so much more, including humanoids, androids, assistive technologies, programming, and how those things impact things like well-being, mental health, people living with autism, educational outcomes, and even aged care. This is truly a fascinating space. I caught up with Sam whilst he was attending the 2019 Queensland Association of Special Education Leaders Conference at the Brisbane Hilton. Sam, we first connected at Edutech 2019 in Sydney when I wandered past the Brainery stand and I was immediately captured by this little thing on the floor, which I believe is called Miro, and it was a robot that seemed to be very interested in me and everybody else. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but I understand the Brainery is about a whole lot more than just that. Can you describe what, what you guys are about? Definitely. The Brainery is a, uh, an interesting one because we have a few different areas that we've been involved with for a long time. And one of the key areas that I'm involved in is uh, STEM education. So that's where Miro and a few other robots that we have on the stand are, uh, are involved with the Brainery. But alongside that, we also do a lot of work with uh, assistive technology in both special schools and in sort of uh, disability around the NDIS. Yep. And alongside that as well, we also work with uh, professionals both in education and healthcare around specific professional resources. Uh, at the moment, I'm actually talking to you from a uh, uh, conference in Queensland, the Queensland Association of Special Education cool. Leaders. Yeah, wow. And um, yeah, we've been working with a professor up here uh, called Barry Carpenter, and he does, does some amazing work um, with students on the autism spectrum and specifically around girls on the autism spectrum. Oh, okay. So yeah. it, um, it does mean we do a, a wide range of things, which um, is really fun because it keeps you uh, keeps your brain ticking along with uh, different ideas, which at the end of the day, um, really STEM education in its essence is pulling together different disciplines and for, for problem solving. And, you know, if we can thinking about different ideas in different contexts i think that's um, that plays into that quite uh, quite nicely yeah so different um different disciplines i guess most people would probably think about stem as being different subjects like science technology engineering and maths what do you mean by different disciplines so in regards to disciplines i was i mean i am looking at um, those four disciplines in the sense of science technology engineering and maths but it's i guess more looking at how those overlap and come together mm-hmm. and in their own way, those disciplines require um, expertise from, say, uh, the arts in the sense of our social sciences. Yeah, so great. Whilst there's um, a little bit of debate around, you know, STEM and STEAM, I think if you are teaching integrated STEM uh, to the best of ability, then uh, the arts and social science come into it because 
uh, one of the key focuses from my perspective of STEM, integrated STEM education is around creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, those sorts of skills, which I think are really, you see that come through in social sciences just as much as you would see them in, uh, in those um, four STEM subjects. Right. Okay. Now, you were talking as well about assistive technologies. So, some big concepts here. So, we're talking about uh, disciplines and subject areas, but, but also assistive technologies. And, and I'm trying to pick up on that, uh, that thing you mentioned before about the people that you're working with in terms of um, looking at children on the autism spectrum. What, what exactly is an, uh, an assistive technology? Yeah, so an assistive technology, um, I don't have a, a definition right in front of me, but from my personal experience and professional experience is something that gives somebody who may be not necessarily neurotypical or may have a disability in some form the ability to, whether it's communicate or um, participate in society on the same level as everyone else who is, um, whether that's neurotypical or seen as mainstream. Yeah. So that can that can be really broad, which is something that is quite fascinating because when you start uh, diving into uh, disability and special education, you start to see the diversity in the sense of um, the challenges that different people are uh, working to overcome yeah. through technology. And yeah. as technology is becoming um, more accessible and also that cost factor is decreasing and we're starting to see that saying just touching harking back to stem for a moment um you can get a, a, a microcomputer for you know less than fifty dollars and, and start to program and write your own little applications and do start working with the internet of things and you know with that ease of access and low cost access we can start to see people coming up with some really innovative ideas around assistive technology that is really fit for purpose and can be really individually tailored. So it's quite exciting in that, se- that sense mm. where assistive technology is really just trying to help people um, engage with society and community. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in, the, in the, uh, the link with autism. What sort of technologies are people using in that space? And I know that might be a very, mm. that might be a very, very big question. <laughs> to, yeah. it, might, it might take a couple of hours to talk about that one, but what kinds of umbrella technologies are we, are we talking about there? Well, it can be anything from, say, some um, communication tools that uh, are older technology in the sense of some physical technology where you've got a communication board and that's working with, say, imagery and also literacy to articulate and tell um, tell someone how someone on the autism spectrum is feeling and, and a, a way for them to communicate and express themselves. And that's, that is still a form of technology, but mm. going right through from um, those sort of communication technologies to, say, uh, petoid and humanoid robots where uh, they can act as motivators and also engagement tools to uh, allow students to communicate, but also get them into some meaningful activities and learning. Right. I've um, I'm seeing some amazing uh, engagement with um, humanoids in uh an autism context. Where, okay, so just before you go on, what what is a humanoid? <laughs> uh, yeah, fair point. Uh, a humanoid is a um, is a robot that is in the form of a human. So uh, it's by no means exactly like a human, but it has its form, so it's how it looks yep. looks human like. Yep. And it also uh, 
depending on it, how complex it is, um, its movements will reflect human movements and try and uh, mirror how we move wow. to a certain extent. Wow. Uh, so there's, um, yeah, there's, there's quite a, a broad range of those available. And it's, you know, if you're, say, someone who's got some uh, uh, high-end connections and uh, some uh, serious amount of capital behind you, you might be able to, say, talk to some people at Boston Dynamics around one of their <laughs> high, you know, crazy robots. Uh, but most of us don't have that. Uh, no. Those sort of resources. So there's there's robots that are um, affordable for schools that they can use in those in those contexts. And there's a few different elements that can be really useful for someone on the autism spectrum. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, this is going a little bit on a tangent towards mental health, but mental health is something that is, I think, becoming more and more uh, important for us. Yeah, uh, and definitely worth talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, is when you are in a care situation where, say, someone in your family uh, maybe on the autism spectrum or, or have a disability, you are constantly, um, as one of the carers, sort of reminding them to do certain activities and, in a way, uh, it can generate some negative associations between you, yep. uh, the carer, and um, your family member. Yeah. And what we can actually do is using, uh, whether it's a virtual assistant or some form of robotics that engages um, with the person on the, on the spectrum or with the disabilities, to yep. use that to provide those repetitive tasks. Okay. And it frees the carer up to uh, not have to, you know, consistently push this person to... Um, fit into the schedule that they need to fit into yeah. Um, and transfers that, uh, I guess, some of those negative connotations that the person may have towards the carer because they're the person always telling them to do things they don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a really interesting one there because... Um, I think a lot of people might have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, uh, and uh, the other thing as well with, with robotics, which is I, find, I personally find really fascinating, is um, just across the board... Um, is that people feel more comfortable actually divulging personal information um, to a robot really? rather than to a human. Yeah, <laughs> really? it, it uh, blows my mind to a certain extent. It's, uh, it's fascinating. But when wow. you think about it, it, um, it does make a bit of sense. Well, uh, I think uh, I think the Terminator series tried to communicate that in T two <laughs> when the when the young boy was trying to communicate with the Terminator on a completely different level. I don't. I'm not in any way suggesting that the humanoids and robots that you're talking about or that you're involved with are like a Terminator. Let's just be clear, <laughs> clear on that. But but it's a good distinction to make. Yeah, it is. But as we say, art imitates life. And I guess the film was trying to communicate the fact that, you know, there is this fascination with with uh, artificial life forms or or, uh, or robots or humanoids, as you've called them. But mm. w- what we see in the film there is what you're actually seeing in real life. It's actually really happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... Yeah, the first time I, I started to notice it, because um, I've spent a lot of time bringing um, robotics into schools, and it gives you a really interesting perspective because uh, over a period of time, I get to see lots of students and their, their reaction to how um, you know these robots work and, and their applications. And it was interesting to start to see the psychology behind it because if you think about it, a robot, um, it's not going to have the same facial features and cues no. and the way that we communicate um, and given that there's less judgment and there's less for someone to try and decipher yeah. in regards to how, how you're feeling and if there's any um, uh, I guess 
silent connotations to what you're actually trying to say. If yeah. there's anything that's behind, um, you know, just saying hello to someone or just the, the simple Aussie thing of, um, you know, somebody asking how you're doing and you say not bad and that's not really saying anything no. at all. <laughs> uh, so there's, um, I think in that sense, if you look at it from that perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense that um, um, people are more comfortable talking to a machine in that sense because it's not like not going to judge you in the same way no but, so so yeah. I'm, I'm curious um the the people who suffer from autism who have these experiences uh, yeah i'm not sure whether you've already answered this but the, do they have a sense of acceptance that that other people just don't have or is are they, are they apprehensive are they nervous what how, how would you how would you describe their in, initial contact uh, what I what I found is they feel, from my understanding, is they feel a bit more control of the situation. Okay, and that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So in the, in that um, there's it is a stereotype uh, to a certain extent uh, that uh, people in the spectrum do engage with technology uh, quite significantly more than say other people, but uh, say neuro, neurotypical, but. I, I think it's also worth pointing out that that is something that we've seen as a stereotype because there are people in the autism spectrum who, who don't engage with technology wow. uh, as well. So it's 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 something it's always worthwhile keeping that in, in context. But um, when it's something like uh, just talking about a human uh, to robot interaction, uh, there's set cues and set procedure in in how you get a, a response from the robot in the sense of. Um, Depending on the robot you're communicating with, it'll it'll make beeps and give different colours to simulate, you know, to articulate to you. Okay, the eyes are blue. Yeah, that means I can talk to it. Oh, um, okay. If its eyes aren't blue, then it's not going to listen to me. So I know more about. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a simpler interaction to a certain extent. So does and, that mean if its eyes are red, it's really cranky and it's kind of got an issue with me? <laughs> Potentially. Well, that's a bit scary. <laughs> uh, I mean, someone may have just program, programmed the, uh, the eyes to go red to sort of get the robot to show that it is unhappy. Um, <laughs> oh, it could be a, oh, a no. negative emotion that it's experienced. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> that, I mean, it, it does come back, and I think this is uh, something really relevant to programming as a whole, is at the end of the day, with um, any technology, digital technology that we're using, it it's really worthwhile taking into account the motivations and bias behind the person who's actually created and programmed it yeah. because uh, whether we like it or not, everyone has their own biases and um, we uh, just include that with our, how we design things in, mm. in, te- in a technology sense as well as mm. in an everyday sense. So um, it's, it's worthwhile thinking about that because even though the robot may seem less judgmental and you feel more comfortable talking to it, the, the data that's being collected um, may be being sent on to, say, uh, a psychologist who's going to analyse that data and say, okay, so it turns out that um, my patient uh, isn't doing okay, even though they say to me that they are. Oh, wow. Um, that, so That's, you know, that's that, actually, that's really happening? Uh, not at this stage just yet, but I can see it's it's not far off. Um, okay. And... When, if you're starting to look at those sorts of things, there's a lot of, um, I guess, ethical considerations you need to look at too, which yep. uh, I guess it allows us to segue back into integrated STEM and, and STEAM in that sense because it's really important that we have a look at the societal um, sort of knock-on effects of in- including technology 
in our lives. And I think it's a really important thing to, to focus on because we just have to take the example of social media and look at the changes that that's um, had on our society. And there's arguments for it being good and bad, but um, that's why you know, the arts are really important because they look at how humanity interacts as a whole. And, and uh, I think that that's really important because if we don't know how the technology is going to uh, influence society, we may get some outcomes we don't really want. Technology outcomes that we don't really want. Now there's something to ponder. Coming up, I talk with Sam about the need to make some clear distinctions about the technology we're talking about and some of the wider healthcare and educational issues. So stay with us. For another look at how technology is evolving to help people with cognitive difficulties and things like autism, check out my discussion with learning innovator Peter Barnes, who takes me through the evolution of educational neuroscience over the last 30 years. We've never thought about, or until recently thought about, uh, how to get better education results other than let's get better teachers, let's mm. beat the teachers up, let's, you know... Increase funding. Increase funding. Build more halls. Build more halls. All of that stuff. Let's change the curriculum. So the curriculum, yeah, let's get a better curriculum. That'll fix it all. What, what's been forgotten or not recognised until this neuroscience revolution came along was that... If you can improve the brains of the students, yeah. the learning capacity of the students, that's a surefire way of getting better educational outcomes. Yeah, sure. So I think it's inevitable that this is going to expand. The use of this is going to expand. And that was Season 1, Episode 4, which was released on the 10th of June, 2019. So we've been talking kind of loosely about interacting with robots but we've also used the word humanoid and then i guess there's also the dis- the, the definition of android uh, are those three things kind of all the same thing or should we be making a much clearer distinction about what sort of technology we're actually dealing with um, that's a good question now i i think it is worth having some distinction um but an android is something that uh, has kind of evolved a little bit because of um you know Android devices, as in uh, uh, mobile devices that aren't Apple. Uh, yeah. So I, I think if we're looking at it from the perspective of um, human and robots, my understanding of an Android is someone, a human who's actually started to um, implement or build into themselves technology. Now, um, I think you need to talk to uh, someone who's a little bit more yeah. uh, experienced in that field around that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's worthwhile having a distinction between uh, something that is a robot and something that um, is, say, a human who has augmented themselves in yeah, some way. Yeah, like a cyborg. Uh, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that's, I mean, people are starting to do that. It's um, something that's been happening for a little while now. Uh, a good example was, um, I think it was in one of the Scandinavian countries. They have um, one of those massive share offices where used to have all these um, swipe cards to access everything, whether it's the car park through to the printer or the cafeteria. And they offered to their staff that you could get an implant instead. Oh, no. So, you know, on your on your right hand, you have an implant that uh, has been coded so that when you scan through the gate, it lets you through. And um, everyone was offered, a, you know, to access that uh, implant for free. And wow. they, they found that, I think it was the under 30s, that you for the most part, took it up and the over-30s uh, 
didn't uh, didn't take it up in that sense. So, um, so is that, that that's is, really fascinating. Is that the same implant that when you then walk past the coffee machine, it knows that you like a, a long black, no sugar, extra hot, and <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that would be nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it's at that stage just yet. Well, it couldn't I, be I far be away. If it, uh, yeah, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then there's um. Uh, I, th- I think he's from from Holland, uh, a Dutchman who has put a um, an implant in his brain that uh, I think allows him to see colour. Oh wow! So that's incredible. Um, there's a few people really pushing the envelope in that sense. Yeah. Well, let's let's come back to Miro um, mm. now f- for because that's something that you're quite familiar with. For our listeners, it's a uh, well, let's it's it's a robot, right? We're calling it a robot. Definitely, and and it's, it has um, it has an animal form, but that's about the, the the extent of my description. Can you can you fill the listeners in a bit more? I'll, I'll definitely do my best. It's a um, it is an animal form, which is a good starting point. But the the design team did an amazing job in the sense of creating something that's really engaging in its body shape, and it's a combination of uh, a few different animals together, and it's got um, the ears of a of a rabbit. Yep. And the face and head of something that looks similar to, say, potentially a kangaroo or wallaby, but also has aspects of, um, say, a dairy cow or yep. uh, even potentially a dog. And then uh, it, it drives around on a couple of wheels and uh, has a tail that it wags when it's uh, when it's happy. So it's um, it is an interesting amalgamation of um, of uh, attributes from different animals and. It's interesting that we've been out of the design team was able to pull those different attributes together and create a uh, a form that was quite engaging. Yeah, and um, I think it's fairly objectively cute. But, yeah, well, uh, I think it that, is. It captured my attention as soon as I saw it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's a it's an interesting one in that sense because I think um, what we're going to see more and more with robots as they come into uh, mainstream society is that uh, they're going to be looking quite cute and engaging because from uh, our from the perspective of human to robot interactions, we feel more comfortable if it's something um, cute and engaging. We're more likely to, I guess, yeah, bring well, it into our lives and, and make it part of what we do. So, where did the Miro story start? I mean, there's a lot more than just behind a lot more behind it than just creating a a, a nice looking animal. There's got to be a, a much deeper philosophy. Then, where, where did the where did its creators want this to go? What 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 was its genesis? Genesis of uh, Miro was very much around looking at the direction that robotics is going in the sense of uh, they saw an opportunity to create a robot that would be able to behave as an animal. And mm. they, they thought that was really useful because nature has created some amazing uh, forms and shapes that are fit for purpose. And rather than... Um, just going out and trying to build something that um, may not build on those um, characteristics, there's already a lot of um, information there available to us. And, I, and they they looked at that and then they decided we can design a robot that uh, can act as a pet, can act as an animal, and using those traits, there's some really positive benefits that we could actually use this, uh, use this robot mm. to achieve. Mm. And... The starting point was to get the design right, then uh, build the, the animatronic brain so that uh, that's the um, the brain that allows it to act like an animal. Yeah. And based on its interactions, it'll 
you know, respond positively or negatively and that will affect its behavior afterwards. Yeah. Um, and then from there it moved into uh, applications for it in a, a, a actual, you know, whether it's a business case or, a, you know, a case to use it in a, in a school or, or a hospital, um, examples where it could actually be of a real benefit to um, society and community. So mm. one of the – a few couple of the areas that um, – have, have been pushed and uh, seem like really good fits are around mental health and well-being and tying that into integrated STEM so yep. that um, it can be something that is uh, programmed by students but because it is quite student engaging there is the option that it, it uh, could be programmed to be used within a therapy setting whether it's a, a therapy dog or a therapy animal Wow. Um, and then the other area is looking at it from uh, a perspective of, uh, of healthcare. So yep. what we've seen in, in, um, in aged care from, uh, unfortunately, the Royal Commission is that uh, we don't have enough uh, resources in the sector to actually give people the quality of, um, of life when they enter aged care. Yep. And it's, it's quite, um, quite a sad thing to, to read about and learn. But the issue is that, we don't. There's a lot of times where we don't have enough staff um, to actually uh, look after everyone adequately. Yeah. And there's high pressures on them. So yep. it's a really good opportunity to implement technology in there to to uh, help aid, uh, alleviate that burden. And Mira can act as a as a tool to, to help in that regard. Yeah. Uh, there's been really um, really good success with a uh, another robot where it's uh, it looks like a seal and. Uh, uh, residents with dementia uh, really enjoy interacting with it and it's been shown to actually decrease anxiety. Is that um, right? Yeah. So uh, when you can decrease anxiety and, and those uh, mental health issues within that context, it's, it's massive for quality of life. And at the end of the day, that's, uh, that's one of the – I feel like that's one of the um, outcomes that we'd really all like. Yeah, that, Absolutely. Uh, when you go into an aged care, you have a high quality of life in that environment. So, and I, look, I, I guess think, from a practical perspective, sorry to cut you in, cut, mm-hmm. cut, cut in there, but uh, from a practical perspective, in an aged care setting, uh, something like a robot requires, I, I would assume, very little maintenance. And I'm talking very, very practically now. I mean, companion animals have been known for a long, long, long time, well, since forever, I suppose, to to, to provide that sort of companionship. But uh, practically speaking, I guess you just have to make sure that they're charged and ready on standby yeah yeah as, as long as um you know uh, we've got some good programming behind it and uh yeah it's charged and ready to roll then we shouldn't have too many issues and uh, that's um the key thing is to make sure that uh whatever you know robotics or technology we're using in that space is something that's you know got that consistency and reliability mm. and if we can achieve that um there's some i think there's some really big benefits that we can we can get out of that. This might not be uh, Miro's skill set right now, but could could a technology like that be used to say watch an aged care patient while they're asleep, or if they're suddenly having some kind of a problem breathing, or if they need attention and they can't raise the alarm themselves? Can can they do that? That's something that uh, we've been looking at doing with Miro. Uh, it's does require a bit of um, complex programming, but it's something that is. For my understanding, theoretically possible in the sense of uh, using the sensors we have on Miro, and we would be able to do a, a form of positive surveillance in that sense. So yeah, yeah. Simple things like, for example, if uh, if we're able to improve um, 
the independence of someone uh, in their um, in their older age. It could be something like uh, they go to the bathroom and if they um, if they don't leave the bathroom after you know five, ten, fifteen minutes, whichever increment we we think is better, yeah, or, or fits is fit for purpose, is um, Miro giving them a, a prompt saying, uh, "Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need assistance?" Sure. And you know if if it doesn't get a response, then it it could. Um, uh, as long as we're connected up to the right systems, potentially yeah. um, contact their, their carer and so they can administer, uh, administer that support mm. uh, if needed. And there's a lot of um, large aged care providers in Australia and no doubt across the world who are looking at ways uh, with innovative technology to increase the independence of their, of their residents. Uh, mm. And this is just another. This is just another example of the assistive technology that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, I guess. Yeah, definitely, and it's. I think it plays really. It, it leads really nicely into into STEM because it's a real world application and a yeah. real world problem that yeah. um, we can start to solve. And I, from my experience in the classroom and um, reading a few journal articles around. Uh, context of learning it's if you can give students real world problems that are, affect them and they can see mm. in their communities you you get really good motivation and engagement to work on those problems and they present uh, a really good vehicle to engage them in uh, learning mm. that we want them to engage with but also has other knock-on benefits in the sense of we may get them out into community uh, engaging with the problem and you know potentially solving the problem uh, and, that, and that's massive yeah and i really like the fact that when we talk about stem you're immediately bringing in the social sciences again that there's that that really nice complementary existence of, of those two categories another thing i wanted to ask is um you know we talk about uh, complex programming with robots humanoids and in this case miro if if i was to obtain a miro and just pull it out of the box does it have a a, a default programming that just allows me to immediately start interacting with it. Yeah, so out of the box, we can put it into a uh, uh, it's animatronic brain setting in the sense of it'll uh, try and explore its surroundings, and if it finds a human, it'll try and nuzzle up to them and uh, <laughs> try and try and get a few pats. Uh, it, it loves to scratch behind the uh, behind its head. Uh, well, everybody uh, likes that. <laughs> Uh, and, and then from there, it is very much around uh, programming it. So we have um, some uh, what's called uh, Blockly, which is visual programming. Yep. So uh, a lot of, um, I'm sure plenty of the uh, people listening would, would uh, be familiar with Blockly. Yep. It's a drag and drop programming software. And then uh, Python as well. So oh, okay. yep. there, is, um, there is scope to, to develop your programming skills with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, universities that are using it at the moment, uh, would be um, going to a next a higher level in development as well. So there's um, yeah, there's there's quite a bit that can be achieved with it, which is really exciting. So with the children with uh, special needs or uh, mm. children with special well-being requirements, you, you say you've been getting some uh, experience with that. What are the parents saying? What sort of parent feedback are you getting? Oh, that's a good one. I haven't been engaged with parents all that much uh, when I'm in those uh, contexts it's usually working with the teacher yeah. uh, within a classroom setting and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time uh, parents will be uh, will be at work or uh, something like that so it's um, I, I'm not too sure what the I guess the response from parents are I, but my 
inkling is that um, if there's a positive result for for their, their children, I, I my expectation would be they're pretty be uh, pretty on board and happy with that. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, I think pretty much all of us would uh, we want the best for um, our family and our community in that sense. Well, we have gone, it seems like we have gone around the world in this discussion, going from humanoids to animatronic brains, talking about potentially Terminator-type situations, <laughs> to aged care and, and children with special requirements. It's just a fascinating world. Sam, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. It's been just incredible. Oh, my pleasure, Colin. It's um, been great fun talking about this, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Central Station. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends and colleagues. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. To find out more about The Brainery or any of the technologies mentioned in this episode, visit the website, thebrainery.com. And for more information about our other guests and episodes, make sure you subscribe or visit the website, central.com.au slash podcast. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.